0: This audio is brought to you by Muslim Central. Please consider donating to help cover our running costs and future projects by visiting www.muslimcentral.com forward slash donate. You're listening to Kalam Institute's podcast series, Sira, Life of the Prophet, by Sheikh Abdul Nasir Jangda. Visit us on the web at kalaminstitute.org. Or find us on Facebook at facebook.comslash Kalam Institute. Bismillahi walhamdulillah wa salatu wa ala Rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahibihi ajma'een. So, in the previous session, uh, continuing our series with the life of the Prophet, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, sallam, asiratu nabawiyah. In the previous session, we were talking about how the Prophet of Allah sallam after some of these major events in his life has had unfolded, such as the passing of his uncle and his beloved wife, and also the journey to Ta'if and the return from that journey, and then the experience of al-Isra al miraj that the Prophet of Allah sallam now had a very clear directive in front of him, and that was to present Islam to other tribes, other regions, other cities, other people, and see if if he could garner any interest within not just accepting Islam, but hosting, becoming a base of operations for the Prophet and for the continued preaching and teaching of Islam. And last time I just talked about how the Prophet exactly approached this situation, how there were individuals like Ayas bin Mu'adh and other such individuals who... You know, were, uh, who embraced the message, who were receptive to the message of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, the appeal of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, but there was still not a tribe or a people that were willing to host. And that's when finally the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam comes across a very small group of people, very humble people. They don't seem very, uh, powerful or wealthy or even educated for that matter. They're mainly farmers, um, and they belong to a small town that is by, called Yathrib. The Prophet Sallallahu was actually familiar with Yathrib for three particular reasons. And these are things that I'll emphasize a little bit later on when we talk about the hijrah, the migration. But first and foremost, the mother of Abdul Muttalib, the mother of Abdul Muttalib. So this is the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi great grandmother. The mother of Abdul Muttalib was from Yathrib. She was from that place. So the Prophet ﷺ still had extended family and relatives there. Number two was the fact that the father of the Prophet ﷺ was—he passed away there and was buried there. And therefore, in his childhood, something we had talked about earlier on in the Sira, in his childhood, the Prophet of Allah ﷺ's mother took him there, and they were visiting there. And on the way back from that, from the, from the, the visit there, the mother of the Prophet ﷺ passed away at a short distance from there. And so there was a profound connection. And of course we talked about also in Al-Isra al miraj that the first stop the Prophet ﷺ made, that the buraq made was at the place of Yathrib Medina. Of course the Prophet ﷺ didn't exactly know that, but when he was asked, and then Jibreel ﷺ tells the Prophet ﷺ to stop and pray two there. After they proceed on forward, they continue on forward, he asks him that... Atadri ayna do you know where you just prayed? And the Prophet said, La, I don't know where I just prayed. And Jibreel Alay tells the Prophet Sallallahu alayhi Wasallam, Ardun that you <coughs> just prayed at a very blessed, beautiful place. Wa And migration will be made to this place. So there was this this thought in the back of the head of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So he meets these people. I kind of alluded to it very briefly and I said we would talk about it in more detail this week. So there are two narrations about how many people there were in this first meeting. One narration says, and, and it also mentions the fact that these people, because it was Al-Mawsim, right? It was the season of Hajj, pre-Islamic Hajj, where they would get together and there'd be festivals and carnivals and business and market and these types of things. Um, these people were actually encamped. Their tent was on the outskirts of the entire encampment, of the entire campsite. Because they weren't very prominent or very important. So they were all the way on the outside. So finally when the Prophet Wasallam reached them and he found... So there are two narrations. One narration mentions that there were six of them. And another narration mentions that there were seven of them. And the names of these individuals are also recorded in the books of Sirah uh, by the, the Muslim historians, the scholars of Sirah have preserved their names. They are Mu'adh bin Al-Harith. Uh, the bin Abdul Qais, um, bin Samit, Yazid bin Thalaba, these, and Al Abbas bin Ubada, these five individuals were from Khazraj. So I talked about it last time, there were two primary tribes, Arab tribes, in this place, Yathrib, which would become Medina, Aus and Khazraj. And they joined back, their lineage met, you know, a few generations back, but once these tribes had split off, these families had split off, they had actually experienced quite a bit of turmoil between the two families. So these five individuals that we just talked about were from Khazraj, and then there were two men from the tribe of Aus. And they were Abu'l Haytham, Um bin at and Uwaym bin, Sa- bin Sa'idah. Uwaym bin Sa'idah. So these were seven individuals. There's a little bit of a difference of opinion. Some of the narrations say that there were six. Some of the narrations that say there were six, some of them, instead of mentioning Uwain, they actually mention Obada bin Samit and vice versa, but the reconciliation easily is that there were seven individuals and the seven names that I just mentioned. Now the story isn't just that simple that the Prophet ﷺ talks to them and they accept the psalm. but it's actually quite fascinating and there's a very profound lesson in this. I'd like for us to kind of focus and reflect on. So the Prophet of Allah ﷺ sits down with them. He says, "Man antum," uh, or rather, the Prophet ﷺ says, "Man antum." Uh, they say, "Nafaru min al Khazraj." We are from Khazraj. Even though there were a couple of people from Aus, but that, those must have been the people replying. And the majority of the people in the group were from Khazraj, so they said, we're from Khazraj. Qala, uh, amin mawali yahud? Aren't y'all like neighbors with the Yahud? Jewish tribes? Like you have affiliations with them? And they said, yes. "Qaluna am. So the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi why did the Prophet Sallallahu specifically ask that? Two things. Number one, of course, he was just confirming the fact. Because when they said they were from Khazraj, the mind of the Prophet raced to Yathrib and he was confirming the fact that if y'all are who you say you are, then you are you have very close ties and affiliations with many of the prominent Jewish tribes of Arabia that live there. So that was just confirmation of exactly who they were. Also kind of breaking some ground with them, letting him know that I'm familiar with y'all. The second thing is that without a doubt, there 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 was this. Thought that occurred to the Prophet ﷺ about the fact that Aus and Khazraj, these Arab tribes, were just like the majority of the Arab tribes at that time, the tribes of Arabia, in the sense that they were idolatrous. Right? They were idol worshippers. They were polytheists, they were idol worshippers. They did not follow any type of a monotheistic, scripture, prophet-based religion. While the Jews and the Christians, what we call Ahlul Kitab, were obviously monotheistic, Prophet-based religions. And so the Prophet ﷺ saw that as a strategic advantage that it won't be so bizarre to them. If I actually sit and tell them, there is one Allah, I am the Messenger of Allah, I am sent, you know, I receive Divine Revelation, the Book of Allah, we will be resurrected in the hereafter for the purpose of jaza, for the purpose of retribution. That won't be the first time they've heard this. Because they interact with Ahlul Kitab. So this thought was there for the Prophet ﷺ. And he saw this as a huge strategic advantage in talking to these people. That I'm not gonna be introducing something alien to them. So the Prophet ﷺ sits down to talk to them. he says, That would y'all have a seat, I'd like to talk to y'all. And they said, of course, no problem. Bala, no, why not? So the Prophet ﷺ sat down with these people, invited them to Allah, presented Islam before them. And the scholars of Sirah actually mentioned this fact that what worked to the advantage of the Prophet ﷺ was the fact that these people were neighbors with Jewish tribes. This wasn't the first time they were hearing this type of a message. But there was an interesting wrinkle to all of this. Because of ethnic, religious, and most importantly, a lot of times we minimize the importance of this, which, you know, given our context right now, we really shouldn't, but economic and even political differences, there was a huge conflict that had been taking place. Even though there were affiliations, traditionally, there was a huge conflict that had been taking place between these Arab tribes, Aus and Khazraj, and between their Jewish neighbors. There was a conflict that had been occurring. And what that conflict... And whenever any type of a conflict would occur between them, the Jewish tribes would always... Threaten Aus Khazraj by basically saying, "Qalul lahum inna nabiyan mabruuthun al-an." That there is a prophet that will be coming very, will be coming right about now, will be coming very soon. Qad adallazamanuhu. His time has arrived. Nattabighuhu. Naktulukum maghu. Qatla adn wa iran. And we will join up with this Prophet this pro- whenever he is sent. We'll follow him, we'll join up with him, and then we'll fight you all, and we'll be able to defeat you and ruin you, and eradicate you people, just like it was done to the people of Ad and the people of Iran. Talking about the nations that had been punished in the past, and why specifically the people of Ad? Because again, the people of Ad were from the Arab region, and the people of Iran were the people from Yemen. And actually these Jewish tribes were descendants of... Uh, people who had migrated over from Yemen. After the floods of Iran. So after those floods, these people, their forefathers, had migrated to this area. So when they said this, they were not only threatening them, they were mocking and poking fun at them. That just like your forefathers were just vanquished and they were ruined. Similarly, that's what we're gonna do to y'all. As soon as this Prophet shows up, we're gonna join up with him, follow him, and then we'll show y'all what's up. So this is what they used to threaten them with. This was the conversation that used to occur. فَلَمَّا كَلَّمَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ أولئك النَّفَرَ وَدَعَاهُمْ إلَى إلَى اللَّهِ قَالَ بَعْضُهُمْ لِبَعْضٍ تَعْلَمُوا وَاللَّهُ إِنَّهُ إِنَّهُ لِلْنَبِيِّ الَّذِي تَوَعَّدَكُمْ بِهِ يَهْوُدٌ فَلَا يسبق فَلَا يَسْبُقُنَّكُمْ Ilehi. So as soon as they heard the Prophet ﷺ speaking, they said that they turned to one another, they said, can you give us a minute? The Prophet ﷺ said, sure. They turned to one another and they say, that's him. That's the guy they always talk about. So then they say, this is the part that's interesting. They say they should not be able to beat us to him. We shouldn't let those Yahood find him and join up with him before us. But we should be the first ones to join up with Him. Now I want you to keep that in mind. فَأَجَابُوهُ فيما دعاه دعاه Of course they responded to the Prophet ﷺ favorably. They basically accepted the مَا عَرَضَ عَلَيْهِمْ told الْإِسْلَامِ وَقَالُوا لَهُ إِنَّا تَرَكْنَا قَوْمَنَا وَلَا قَوْمْ بَيْنَهُمْ مِنَ وَالشَّرِّ مَا بَيْنَهُمْ فَإِنْ يجمعهم الله عليك فلا رجل أعز منك ثم don't care about anything else. We will leave our people. We will abandon all other affiliations if necessary. But we are with you. We believe in you. And they go back home. They go back to Yathrib after this interaction with the Prophet, having believed six or seven people, having accepted Islam. This was the beginning of Islam in Al Madinatul Munawara, Yathrib at that time. Now, a year passes by. So this is the eleventh year of Prophethood, preaching and teaching Islam. A year passes by. And so it's it seems like I'm skipping over a lot, but I'm I'm gonna talk about a few things that'll fill in the blanks here. But a year while we're on this topic, a year passes by, and the following year, the Prophet, according to you know, the strategy. The Prophet ﷺ has another very difficult year in Mecca. I'm gonna talk about some specific incidents that go on in Mecca at that time. But I'd like to, for us to kind of stay on topic here. A year goes by, the Prophet ﷺ had a very difficult year preaching and teaching. So again when the season of Hajj comes and all these tribes from all over Arabia basically congregate together, the Prophet ﷺ once again once again goes there, starts interacting with these people, talking to these people, receiving a very similar response. As he received the previous year, where most people aren't interested, they're not accepting, they're not receptive to the message of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and then lo and behold, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam sees those same people from last year. They're looking for him. They're looking for him. And the Prophet Sallallahu they see the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam sees them, and, you know, it's a, it's a really, uh, you know, emotional moment for everyone. Everyone's very excited. The Prophet ﷺ is seeing, not only do these, did these people accept Islam, they were able to keep their iman. And they showed up next year as well, once again. So he's enthusiastic, he's very elated and excited to see these people. These people are equally, if not more, excited to see the Prophet ﷺ again. They've had a year for this iman, this faith, this iman to soak in. But they t- then they take the Prophet to their tent, and he very, of course, you know, uh, excitedly accompanies them. When they enter into the tent, the Prophet is surprised. There's an even bigger surprise than these people coming back. There are 12 people there in the tent. And if you need some help with the math, that's five slash maybe six people more than there were the previous year. If there were six, that's six more people. Double the number. And if there were seven people, that's five extra people. By the way, those six, pe- if we go on the narration based on the fact that there were six people, only five of them have returned. One or two of the people from previous year haven't come back, so that actually makes it seven new people that have come. Seven new people. That's more people, that's an equal or more number of people than there were the previous year. New people including the previous believers. And he's informed about the people, the one or two guys that didn't come back from the previous year, that they're good, they just weren't able to make it. But we have all these extra people, friends, who are ready. They came here, they pretty much have accepted the message, but we brought them to you, Ya Rasulullah. And now the Prophet is very, very intrigued by these developments. The names are mentioned that the five that came back from the previous year were Abu Umama, which is basically, uh, As'ad bin Zurara, Aufu bin Zuraara, ibn Afra, Rafi' bin Malik, Qutbah, and Uqbah, and then of course there were, uh, the others were Mu'adh ibn, uh, Mu'adh ibn al-Harith, um, the, and Zakwan, the we were not able to come again this following year. And then the other ones who came were Ubada bin Samit, if we don't accept that he was there the previous year. A few other names that were able to come were. Trying to find. Some of the other names that are mentioned here. Where we talked about Abu Haytham coming the previous year, yes, some of the some of the individuals that came this following year um, were Awain bin Sa'ida, who we talked about previously. He was able to return back this year, and then the rest of the names of the Sahaba, I'm not actually able to find it in my notes right now. I'll try to see if I can find it, and I'll mention it later, inshallah. But in total. There is a consensus, like we talked about the previous year, there were six or seven individuals, there's a consensus that there were twelve people that returned the following year. Now there are twelve people, so the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam sits down with them, the seven new people who have come, five of the previous year, the seven new ones, the Prophet Sallallahu now not only gives them their shahada, not only do they accept Islam, but the Prophet of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi on top of that, does something very interesting. The Prophet ﷺ basically gives them what is in the Arabic language called "faba'ya Fabaya "faba'ya 'ahu." They give bay'ah to the Prophet ﷺ. They give an oath of allegiance to the Prophet ﷺ. And the oath of allegiance that is described is described as in the books of Hadith, in the books of Sirah. It's described as what is called bay'atun nisa." Bay'atul Nisa. The reason why it's called Bay'atul Nisa, which literally would mean the oath of women, it wasn't the oath of women that they took at that time, but eventually the oath that they took was an oath that was later revealed in the Quran that the Prophet Sallallahu took from women after Suluhudaybiyah. And that was the oath. It's in Surah number sixty, Surah Al Mumtahina, Ayah number twelve. I'm just going to recite the ayah, but of course, they took it in terms of these were twelve men taking this oath, where Ya Ayyuhan النَّبِيُّ Widaajak جَاءَكَ الْمُؤْمِنَاتِ يعنك, that O prophet when the women come to you, believing women come to you, giving you the oath of allegiance. And what is that oath of allegiance? Allahu Shirku Billahi Shay'a. So in the case of these men, Allahu Shirku Billahi Shay'a, that they will not associate any partners to Allah ever, not in. In any way, shape, or form. Number one. Number two. They will not steal. Number three. Walayyaznu. Yasnu, يزنو. They will not fornicate or commit adultery. Number four. They will not kill their children. They will not kill their children. And this could, you know, be taken to mean either the bearing of daughters, the brutal practice of bearing daughters pre-Islamically, or it can also be referring to just the act of aborting a child as well. Number five, وَلَا يَأْتُونَ وَلَا يَأْتُوا بَيْنَ And number five, that they will not slander anyone. They will not slander, make false accusations without knowledge and confirmation of the circumstances. Number six, وَلَا يَعْصُونَكَ, وَلَا يَعْصُونَكَ فِي مَعْرُوفٍ and number six is that they will not disobey you in a good matter, in a good issue. That when you give them an instruction, they will follow your instructions. And then Allah goes on to mention in the ayah itself, Hunna." Then give them this, this oath of allegiance. "Wastaghfir lahunna Allah," "Wastaghfir lahunna Allah," And seek forgiveness on their behalf with Allah. Ask Allah to forgive them. In Allah, of course, Allah is constantly forgiving and constantly merciful. So this oath of allegiance was taken by these people. They took this oath of allegiance. Will not associate any partners, so after accepting Islam, not associate any partners with Allah, not steal, not fornicate, not kill children, um, meaning aborting children or bearing daughters, not engage in any type of slander, um, and not disobey you when you give them an instruction. Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So this was the um, oath of allegiance that they took, and the Prophet sallallahu gave each and every single one of them the oath of allegiance. Later on, later on when the Prophet sallallahu in the days of Medina would give a similar oath of allegiance to people, there was a seventh item. And the seventh item was? Jihad or qital. That if the circumstances, the situation arises that you call them to arms, they will they will answer the call to arms. But of course, this, these are the days of Mecca. So this seventh item was not included in the oath of allegiance. And they give this oath of allegiance to the Prophet ﷺ. And now at this point, they make a request. The Prophet ﷺ again, after giving them this oath, they tell, the Prophet ﷺ says, alright, once hajj season wraps up, y'all be heading back home. Basically go home with this you know, new uh, fervor and this new instruction and guidance and way of life and go and live it and implement it and see if others are interested in it. But they make a specific request. The request that they make is that, Ya Rasulullah, we would like for you to send someone with us, someone that you have taught, somebody that has learned the Qur'an, the book of Allah from you. Because revelation has now, this is the 12th year of prophethood. That means the Qur'an is being revealed for 12 years now. And the bulk of the Qur'an is Makki. That means quite a bit of the Qur'an, half or more of the Qur'an has already been revealed. Has already been said, there's quite a bit. So is there someone that you have, Ya Rasulullah, who has memorized from you what has been sent down from the Qur'an, has understood from you what has been sent down from the book of Allah. Now we also have the institution of salah. We talked about after al-Isra wal-mi'raj, we also have the institution of prayer. So is there somebody who has learned to pray from you, is very well versed within the prayer, so can, is there anyone you can send with us to not only lead us in prayer but to teach us and can be a more qualified, more educated caller and inviter to Islam. Because they saw the way the Prophet ﷺ operated, and they saw that the dawa, the message of the Prophet ﷺ, and this is a very salient point, we need to understand here, that da'wah is based on, yes, da'wah requires a certain amount of passion. There's no doubt about that. You have to be passionate about the cause. You have to be motivated and inspired and passionate about preaching and teaching Islam. But that doesn't suffice, that's not enough. But the da'wah of the Prophet ﷺ was always very well informed as evidenced by the fact that the da'wah of the Prophet ﷺ, when he presented Islam to people, what was the primary vehicle, the tool that he used to present Islam to people? To open people's hearts and minds, to consider what Islam had to offer to them. What was that primary vehicle? The Qur'an, the book of Allah. He would recite the Qur'an to them. Knowing who they were, assessing their situation, he would read ayat to them, present ayat to them. And it would change their perspective on things. It changed their reality, the world that they lived in. And so they said, Ya Rasulullah, we could go back and try to talk about this message with people. We don't know a lot. Do you have somebody that could preach the way that you preach or close to it as possible? Knows the Qur'an, knows the book of Allah enough to really present this message effectively to people. And this is a very profound reminder that this isn't call for a moratorium on da'wah. But what what this definitely does do is it puts... Uh, a lot of emphasis and necessitates for somebody involved in calling and teaching and preaching people Islam, which is a responsibility and obligation that we all have, that we have to constantly keep progressing in our understanding and relationship with the book of Allah. Necessary, absolutely necessary. So the Prophet of Allah him understanding what they're asking for, he says, "I have the, I have just the guy. I have the right man for the job. And that is none other than Mus'ab bin Umair. Mus'ab bin Umair. But I'm gonna add something to this. First of all, I'm not sure if we talked about Mus'ab bin Umair in a lot of detail. But Mus'ab bin Umair رضي ta'ala anhu was a young man, described by the Prophet later on as being someone who was you know, uh, really just a young, talented, intelligent, charismatic, personable, you know, larger than life, handsome young man. And so he was the center of attention, the life of the party. He was somebody that people gravitated towards. He was a young man at this time, about 16 years old, in the early days of the Prophet ﷺ, preaching and teaching the message of Islam. His family, his family were very privileged, very wealthy people. And so he had grown up in the lap of luxury, he had been afforded all types of luxury and, you know, uh, you know, financial and, and uh, there were no financial restrictions. He had been afforded every type of luxury you can imagine. Whatever he wanted to. Whatever he needed, whatever he wanted to engage in that was provided to him, made available to him. Until now he believes in Islam. He accepts the message of the Prophet ﷺ. When his family found out, particularly his mother, you know, they chained him up, tied him up, tortured him, tried to dissuade him from Islam. Of course, he persisted, did not give up his faith and his religion. Eventually, his mother releases him. He goes to the Prophet ﷺ, and he's amongst the migrants that go, the immigrants that basically go and leave Makkah and go to Abyssinia, Habasha, East Africa, and he resides there for some time. After which when some of the people, the Muslims in Habasha hear news of maybe a change of situation in Mecca, some of them come back. And when they get outside of Mecca, they realize that's not the case at all, that's not the truth at all. So a lot of them return back to Habasha straight from outside of Mecca. But some of them decide to go ahead and come on in. And some of them are specifically motivated by wanting to see the Prophet ﷺ again and be in the company of Rasulullah ﷺ. And Mus'ab bin Umayr was one of them that came back. And he was now basically seeking refuge in the house of Arqam and just wanted to be with the Prophet ﷺ again. And because of his situation, circumstance, young, intelligent, and then basically he's there in the house of Arqam all the time, non-stop keeping company with the Prophet ﷺ. He had been learning non-stop stop. And he had really been hardened by the life experiences he had already had. So the Prophet ﷺ realized he's the best guy for the job. And so he says you take Mus'ab bin umayr with you. He'll do a good job. But this is where I'd like to point out something very interesting, very fascinating. And that is the Prophet ﷺ did not send Mus'ab bin umayr on his own. There was a second individual he sent with him. And that was Abdullah bin Ummi Maktum. Radiallahu taala anhu. Abdullah bin Umi Maktoom was a little bit of an older individual. He was older, more mature, a senior person. He was blind. He's the same blind Sahabi Radiallahu taala anhu, who's the subject of the revelation of Abbasawatawalla. He's the same blind individual that would later on go on to become one of the Muadzins, one of the people who called adhan for the Prophet Sallallahu alaihi along with Bilal Radiallahu anhu. And he was an older man, an older individual, very, you know... He, he had a very calm demeanor. He was very um, very calm, very um, experienced. And just an older person that just had a lot more experience and wisdom. And he had a very calming effect on people. And so the Prophet Elijah is sending a young, charismatic, knowledgeable preacher. But he doesn't send him on his own. He, along with him, he sends an older, very calm, cautious, older man along with him. And the scholars actually explain in the wisdom of the Prophet that he actually put Abdullah bin Ummay in charge. He actually put him in charge. He said, told Musa ibn Umayyad, you report back to him. And so we see the Prophet from very early on creating this balance between the talent... The Prophet you know, a lot of times we talk about both sides of things. Yes, the prophets, a lot of folks in our community need to understand. The Prophet ﷺ facilitated the talent and the development of young people. He didn't hold it down, he didn't bottle it up. He didn't do that. But the Prophet ﷺ facilitated growth for them, opportunities for them, provided those opportunities, encouraged them, developed them. Because that, that's the lifeblood of this ummah. We talk about it, when we need to fundraise, we talk about the future of the ummah. But are we that comfortable with the future of the ummah if it's time to give a khutbah? Or if it's time to give a khatira Or if it's a time to give some responsibility? Are we still that enthusiastic and excited about the future of the ummah? So the Prophet ﷺ didn't practice slogans. He didn't just you know shout slogans and you know just advertise and have like you know slogans that he just marketed with, but the Prophet lived it. He really facilitated and empowered young people and their talents and their abilities, but there's a concern. The concern is that they can be a little inexperienced, they can be a little rambunctious, all right? Big word. All right, which Which basically means they can be a little rowdy. You know, they can have a little too much energy for their own good sometimes. They can get a little ahead of themselves. You know, those are very, very valid concerns. Now, how do we go about in addressing those concerns? A lot of times we address those concerns by shutting the door. Nope, we don't trust you. You might get a little crazy, a little rowdy. Or, God forbid, somebody makes a mistake because you know, humans don't make mistakes. We're all perfect creation, right? We don't make no mistakes. I'm being sarcastic here, alright? So, the, let alone somebody, God forbid, makes a mistake. So the Prophet instead of just shutting the door, and shunning them, and bottling them, and containing them, if there was a valid concern, the Prophet instead created a very communal approach, a team approach. That why don't we pair the energy, the enthusiasm, the talent, the ability, the empowerment of young people with the wisdom and the experience of the older generation. And he created a very balanced approach in that regard. And that was the approach of the Prophet Wasallam. So he sends these two with this group of 12 people back to Yathrib, back to Medina where there are now basically 13 or 14 believers, plus these two that have gone back. So now you have a total of 16 believers, two people that are there specifically on a da'wah mission, with 14 locals that they have to work with, 13, 14 locals. And so what basically occurs and what happens now? So the narration goes on to mention that when they get back, the Prophet of Allah, oh, I almost forgot to mention this. The Prophet Sallallahu after giving them this oath of allegiance and before sending them back, the Prophet Sallallahu in the narration of Bukhari, he says, "ومن وفى that whoever fulfills this oath, then their reward is with Allah. ومن أصاب مِنْ ذَلِكَ شَيْئًا به فِي الدُّنْيَا فهو لَهُ أو قال كَفَارَةٌ لَهُ ومن أصاب مِنْ ذَلِكَ شَيْئًا فَسَتَرَهُ اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ فَأَمْرُهُ إلَى اللَّهِ, إن شاء الله غَفَرَ لَهُ وإن شاء That the Prophet sallallahu says, whoever follows through with this, they will get the reward with Allah. Allah will reward them. But whoever does not follow through with this exact you know oath and allegiance and what's been talked about here today, then the prophet Alaihi says that that person will either be punished in the dunya, they will face the consequences of what they've done in the dunya. and if that ends up happening, then that is the removal removal of their sin, the cleansing of them. and whoever is not you know whoever does not fulfill this oath and Allah hides their sin. Meaning nothing, it's not discovered, it's not found out, they're not punished for it in the life of this world. Then, again, their affairs with Allah. If Allah wants, He will forgive them, and if Allah wants, He will punish them. But it's in the hands of Allah. So He tells them this, He attaches, you know, Musa bin Umayd and, uh, Abdullah bin Umm Maktoum to them, and they basically go back to Medina, to Yathrib. As'ad bin Zurarah, who was one of the early uh, converts, uh, one of the early people who accepted Islam from Yathrib from Medina, he ends up hosting Musab bin Umaid in his own home. He's a young man at this point in time, probably in his early to mid 20s. And he was basically kind of al Muqri wal Qari. Right? He was known as the Qari, the reciter, or Muqri, the one who used to teach people the Quran. And that's what he did. When he pre- preached, when he gave da'wah, he presented the Qur'an. And once people converted, He taught them the Qur'an. And ya ummuhum, And He would lead them in prayer. And in this is another very interesting, fascinating development. And that is Aus and Khazraj, like I talked about before, these two tribes, and now people are converting rapidly from both tribes. They had a little bit of a beef and a little bit of a issue between them that had been there for quite a few years. Now of course, Islam came to remove all these types of you know, uh, issues from between people, but naturally it took some time. And so initially, if somebody from Aus or Khazraj would have ended up leading the prayer, that could have become a point of tension between the people. So we see another wisdom in the practice of the Prophet The Prophet sent a neutral party, Musa bin Umair, to lead their prayer. Because what's the objective here? The objective is to develop to develop them, to grow them, to work them out of these issues. And if they need a little bit of time, then that's only human again. They're gonna need a little bit of time. There's nothing wrong with that. That's not prohibitive in any way. But the Prophet ﷺ realizing the wisdom and the hikmah in this, sends a neutral party to even leading them in the prayer until they get through and work through and overcome these issues, rather than you know, creating further tension between them by putting them in a position that they might not be ready to handle yet. This is wisdom, this is hikmah, knowing what people can handle and know what they can't handle. And that again, we see that practice here. And this, the narration also mentions, فَجَمَّعَ بِهِمْ أي مصعب بن عُمَيْرِ فَجَمَّعَ بِهِمْ أَوَّلَ جُمْعَةٍ جُمْعَةٍ فِي الْإِسْلَامِ And then مُصْعَى bin عُمَيْرَ رضي الله عنه led the first Jumma'a prayer ever conducted in the history of Islam. And this is kind of a a landmark that's you know that can still be visited in the Medina. That when you go there, it's declared. It's called Masjidul Jumu'ah, and basically it's the site of the first Jumu'ah prayer that was ever conducted, that was ever led. And this was by the instruction of the Prophet ﷺ, led and implemented by Musa bin Umair ibn Ishaq. رحمه one of the foremost authorities of the Seerah of the Prophet actually says that, من جمع من جمع He says the first one to lead the Juma prayer was actually Abu Umama, meaning As'ad bin Zurara, who was from Khazraj. Now, how do we go about, and there's even another narration that talks about Ka'b bin Malik. Ka'ab bin Malik radiallahu ta'ala anhu is another Ansari sahabi. He, his son actually mentions that whenever he would hear, Nida' yom al every time he would hear the adhan of Jumu'ah, li Asad bin Zurara," He would make dua for As'ad bin Zurara. He would remember him, talk about him and make dua for him. And so, his son basically asked him that what is the deal that every single time you hear the adhan of jumuah you make dua for Asad bin Zurara like that's a good thing but why what what's the reason behind it he says l-an-nahu awwalu l-an-nahu awwalu man binafi hazmin min bani bayaba fi yuqal and he says that because Asad bin Zurara was the first one to congregate us for the Juma'a prayer at this particular location. He gives a name of the location, Baqi al Khasimat, and he says, come antum yawm'ithin. how many of were how many of you were there on that day? And he said, arba'un." we were forty people. We were forty people. And so the community was growing. Remember the 12-13 people that had gone to Mecca and accepted Islam? Well, now they'd come back. Musa bin Umair radiallahu ta'ala had obviously been doing his job. And we were up to 40 people and that's when the first Jum'ah prayer was conducted. Now how do we go about in reconciling this? The reconciliation of this that a lot of the scholars mentioned is that the one who organized the Jumu'ah prayer, the one who congregated everyone, got everyone together, and made sure everything was together and everyone came together and everything was okay and good was As'ad bin Zurara, but it was Musa bin Umeir radiyallahu ta'ala who actually performed the Jumu'ah prayer first time. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best, but that's a very possible reconciliation, uh, of this exact issue. And then here, the scholars basically mentioned that, تَجْمِعُوا أَصْحَابِ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَّىٰهِ صلى الْجُمُعَةِ That this Jumu'ah prayer being conducted by the companions of the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم. This was the first Jumu'ah that was conducted, and it was called Jumu'ah at this time. And it was a gift from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم commanded them to implement the Jumu'ah prayer. سُورَةُ jumu'ah as we know it, meaning the fardiyah of Jumu'ah, Jumu'ah actually being made an obligation and Surah Al-Jumu'ah being revealed. That was after the Hijrah. That was after the migration of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam from Mecca to Medina. That's when Jumu'ah was implemented and that's when Jumu'ah was made an obligation. And from there, there on forward it continued, and that's why the Prophet ﷺ even said, Yahud wa Nasara That this same Jum'ah, the opportunity to have the blessing of Jum'ah, was given to the nations that came before you, the Ahlul Kitab, the Yahud and the Nasara, but they lost this gift. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given it to you, has granted to you as a gift. And... This was basically the first Jumu'ah prayer that was offered. And Musa bin Umayr radiallahu ta'ala anhu started preaching and teaching the message of Islam very actively. There's a little bit of a story and an incident, a narration that basically is mentioned about Musa bin Umayr radiallahu ta'ala anhu preaching and teaching Islam uh, there in Yathrib in Medina that really exemplifies you know, how he carried on the message and how he was conducting the message and the type of approach that he basically had at that time. Before I go forward, Salatul Isha today is? 8.45, okay, I'll end in 10 minutes inshallah. So, Musa bin Umayn radiallahu ta'ala is a guest of As'ad bin Zurara. And he basically goes and not only they're in the home of As'ad bin Zurara, he hosts people, talks to them, teaches them, preaches to them, but he also will occasionally go out and visit people as well. So what basically happens now is, two of the leaders of the Ansar, who are Sa'ad bin Mu'adh and Usaid bin Hudayr. They were both representatives of Aws and Khazraj. Sa'ad bin Mu'adh and Usaid bin Hudayr. They were both leaders of both of these tribes. And they come to As'ad bin Zurara, and they basically say that we're seeing more and more more and more people dozens of people have converted more and more people continue to convert we're not sure about what's going on over here we're not comfortable with this outsider coming here and causing up you know causing a stir even though there was not any type of open conflict but they were just concerned what is he doing is he trying to build some type of cult is he trying to develop some type of following what's exactly the deal here we don't really understand asad bin zurara you know, being a very intelligent man, he says, why don't you sit down and talk to him? Why don't you sit down and talk to him, hear what he has to say? If you like what he has to say, Alhamdulillah, it's all good. If you don't like what he has to say, then we'll take it from there. We'll hear you out. We'll solve this problem. But I'm just saying, why don't you directly hear it from him? Get it from the source. Here directly sit with him, talk to him, ask him whatever questions you want, and get it from the source. So Asad bin Zurara introduces Musab bin Umair, and he says, "Hada Sayyidu Qomihi Qadjaaka fa'asdukillaha feehi." Then he said, "Musab, in yajlis hada ukelmuhu." So they come, and so Musab bin Umair says, "If he sits with me, if he's willing to talk to me, I'll talk to him," and so. They basically come there, they sit with him, and they're a little perturbed, they're a little aggravated. So they basically kind of lash out at him a little bit, saying, what are you doing here? You're just here deluding our young people. You know, anybody that you find who's a little weak-minded or weak-spirited, you try to snatch him up, and you try to like confuse them, and that's what you've been doing. So Musa bin Umair radiallahu ta'ala anhu at this time says, please have a seat. Hear me out. If you like what he, what I have to say, fantastic. You can even accept it. If you don't like what in then I will stop akuffu anka matakra. I will stop doing whatever it is that is bothering you. So he said, "Fine, that sounds fair enough." So they sit down, and fakallamahu waqara Quran. Musa ibn radiallahu ta'ala speaks to them and recites the Quran to them. And they both testify at that time, Wallahi la'arafna fi wajihi il-Islam قبل أن يتكلم. We already knew that this guy, there was something special about this guy even before he spoke. But now that he spoke and he recited this Quran, we have no doubt about, ما أحسن هذا وَأَجْمَلَهُ you know, that how absolutely amazing and beautiful it is that what he's presented. So he then, they basically then say that we're ready to accept the message, we're ready to accept Islam. And he gives both of them the shahada. He teaches both of them to, basically instructs them to go purify themselves, take a bath, change their clothes, teaches them how to make wudu. He prays with them, teaches them how to pray, recites the Qur'an to them. And both of them have converted. And at this point, they both basically go amongst their people and they present their own Islam to their people. And that's when the floodgates really start to open and more and more people start to come into the fold of Islam from that point on. So the point that I specifically wanted to mention here was, it shows the wisdom of Musa bin Umair رضي ta'ala anhu That he's very calm in the face, you know, they're, they're very confrontational, he's very calm, very relaxed, sits down with them, and very simply presents the Qur'an to them, presents Islam to them in its purest form. He doesn't worry about answering their specific objections or their accusations, no, no, no. You're, you know, you're deluding our young people, you're confusing our simple-minded people. He doesn't get into all that. He said, let me just share Islam with you. And recites the Qur'an to them. And it has that profound effect on them. And that's how they basically come into the fold of Islam. And that was the very wise, tempered, yet extremely informed and passionate approach of Mus'ab bin Umayr ta'ala anhu. And the numbers continue to build. Dozens upon dozens upon dozens of people continue to come into the fold of Islam. And this, basically starts to gain some speed and some momentum. And this is basically where a year passes by, another whole year goes by. And now there are 70 plus people, almost 80 people on their way to Mecca the 13 years after Iqra. 13 years after the beginning of Islam, preaching and teaching the message of Islam. 13 years later there's nearly 80 people who are leaving Yathrib, leaving what is soon to become Medina, and on their way to Mecca to meet with the Prophet ﷺ, accept Islam at the hands of the Prophet ﷺ, and give the oath of allegiance to the Prophet ﷺ. And that's basically where we'll pick up and where we'll start from inshallah the following week, um, in the next session. What I'd like to mention here is something I alluded to in the beginning, I wanted to kind of save this as a... some Just some concluding thoughts. If you recall, if you remember, I talked about how in the very first meeting of the Prophet ﷺ with these people from Medina, Yathrib at that time, there were six or seven individuals. The Prophet Wasallam caused them to Islam. Of course, they hear the Prophet Wasallam; they hear him out. But more specifically, what was mentioned at that time, was that they have a conversation with one another. They kind of ask for a little bit of a sidebar, right? Can we go, can we talk things over? The Prophet is sure. And they have a little conversation. If you recall in that conversation, they say, that's the guy. Because of their conflict with the Jewish tribes, and Jewish tribes would threaten them that there's a Prophet who's about to come and we're gonna follow him, we're gonna join up with him, and then we'll destroy you people. That they basically now say that he's the same guy that they talk about. We should beat them to him. Now, how do I exactly understand what they're talking about there? Number one, of course, having the best of assumptions and, you know, assuming the best on behalf because at the end of the day, these are not ordinary people. These are Sahaba, radiallahu ta'ala. These are the Ansar. If you recall, if you remember, in the previous session, I talked about the virtues of the Ansar. These are a group of people where the Prophet ﷺ said, "I wish I was one of them. I would have won. If there was lo la lhisratul Lakuntu imra min al ansar, akuntu imra an ansariyan, I would have been from the Ansar. These are people that the Prophet said, said, 'Lo salakan ansu shi'aban, wasalak al ansaru shi'aman, lassalaktu shi'ab al ansar. If everybody went one way and the Ansar went another way, I'd go the way of the Ansar." And to Mahhabun Nasi Ilayah, these are you are the most beloved of people to me. So these are special people. These are the Ansar. So we have the best of assumptions that they understood the message of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. They were just simply able to make the connection that by the by, by the way, that's the same guy that they talk about a lot of times. It doesn't take away from the fact that they understood the message. They believed in the message. They were just simply saying the fact that that's the same guy, they were able to make that connection. And they did definitely feel that, what does Allah encourage us to do in the Qur'an? Fastabiqul Khairat. Rush, race one another to good things. That's, that's a good competition, that's a good healthy sense of competition. So they were just simply trying to get to something good before anyone else. That's one thing. However, the scholars do mention that even if at some level, they were a little bit motivated maybe by the fact that, hey, those people that we have a conflict with, they've been looking for him to try to get together with him because this will bring them some type of strength or prominence. But instead of them finding him and them having the overhand over, uh, over having the hand over us, them gaining the the, 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 the advantage in this conflict that we have, the upper hand, instead of that, why don't we go ahead and align ourselves with this man, and that'll put it, give us a very strategic advantage. We'll have the upper hand. Maybe at some level, that consideration could have been there. But what all that this goes to show you is that sometimes, you know, this is just goes to show you about humble beginnings. That sometimes people could be coming from a particular place, a particular circumstance, a specific situation, but never underestimate people. This is that same lesson of not underestimating anyone. I talked about this in the beginning of the Ansar. Ansar were simple people, farmers, village folk, small townspeople, farmers, uneducated, illiterate, no numbers, no money, no nothing. But the biggest mistake anyone could make was to underestimate them. This, these people later on became The backbone of the ummah, they were the backbone of the ummah, and so once again we learn, we see that same lesson here that Rasulullah ﷺ, you know, even if he heard their conversation, did not worry about that. They might be coming from a particular background, so that's okay. But that's not that doesn't take away from the fact that once these people actually put their hand in the hand of the Prophet ﷺ, and they accept Islam, and they give the oath of allegiance to the Prophet ﷺ, and they learn the Qur'an from the Prophet ﷺ, they stand up and they pray with the Prophet ﷺ, that they will not develop an iman. There's nothing to say that they won't develop an iman. They will become better people, they will develop in their iman, and they will become remarkable people who will then have solid and proper faith. Absolutely. And that consideration is taught to us here through the example of these five, six people, six, seven people who came, might have had another consideration in mind. But that still did not change the fact that they had the potential that they had. And the Prophet saw that potential. And he was, he gave them the opportunity to develop, facilitated their growth, and look who they ended up becoming. They came back the next year with twice as many people, who then took back a teacher to their own people, and before you know it, they had multiplied their numbers by the tens, by the dozens. Those same people. So never, never underestimate where somebody's coming from. Somebody's ideas or somebody's thoughts on Islam, on faith or beliefs seem very simple, very simplistic. It's good. What do you mean it's good? It's good stuff, you know. You'll meet people like that. Don't, don't, don't laugh at people like that. Don't overlook people like that. Don't belittle people like that. And never ever underestimate people. Because you don't know the khayr that Allah's put in them. And you don't know what they'll end up achieving later on. That the first time they stand up and pray, the first time they open the book of Allah, you don't know what type of journey of iman they're going to take. It might be way beyond any journey of iman that we've ever taken, any experience we've ever had. So never underestimate these people. Any Anybody. And these folks, these Ansar, these humble people from a small little farm town were a beautiful, amazing, remarkable and historical example of this fact. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us the ability to practice everything that was said and heard. Subhanallah wa bihamdihi Subhanakallah wa bihamdik Nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta Nassaghfirka wa natubu ilayk